As a way of introduction, Sarah, thank you very much for being here and being a guest on our podcast. You are a leader in the field of family law. Um, you graduated uh, from Queen's University in 86 and you did a master's in 89, graduated from law school in 91. And if I'm not mistaken, you've been practicing family law uh, almost the whole time you've been a lawyer. Um, you started your career, I saw, uh, as a clerk in the Supreme Court. So I'd love to hear about that. But if you'd like, I always uh, take a step back and ask the question, what prompted you to study law? Give us a bit of a background. Who is Sarah? For the, specifically about law, uh, uh, not, um, you know, it wasn't a very serious decision on my part. I studied history at Queen's, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then I went and did a master's in history, which I also enjoyed, but it's it's not what you'd call practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I was doing my master's, it occurred to me that I probably should do something a little sensible to try to earn a living. And I thought, well, what could I do um, with this history degree? And I decided to write the LSATs. Mm-hmm. So it, it's... Um, it's that simple, really. I didn't, nobody in my family uh, was a lawyer, uh, and I didn't have any idea of what the practice of law would be like. Uh, the first time uh, I think I even went into a law office was probably when I did uh, interview as a summer student. So I really had no idea what I was getting into or what the profession would be like. Wow. And how did you enjoy the whole law school aspect? I think you must have been a fantastic student because you landed up at the Supreme Court and only the cream of the crop get there. So how was that experience and how did you land up at the Supreme Court? Well, well, thank you. Um, I loved law school. That was the thing. I really had no idea what I was getting into. And then uh, I started. I was at U of T. Uh, and uh, Rob Pritchard at the time uh, was the dean, and it was he fostered a really uh, open uh, intellectual experience. Uh, I I discovered that I found law fascinating while I was there. Lucky, <laughs> and uh, and I did well at it, um, which was also um, I mean it's a it's a mixture of luck and skill because um, you know I'm quite a good exam writer. Uh, I'm maybe not the most, um, not always um, perhaps the most thoughtful. I'm not the best person on that 40-page uh, term paper necessarily. But I'm I'm good at exam writing. I'm good um, at um, processing information and uh, figuring out legal analysis quickly. Probably helps in a courtroom as well. And uh, in those days, anyway, U of T Law was 100% final exams. So um, that was just played to my skill set, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the court, um, I I just saw a sign posted um, that they were um, asking for applications. And one of my my small group prof at at U of T Law, in first year, you do a lot of big lectures, and then you have one small seminar. And mine was in property law with Jim Phillips, uh, who had uh, a background in history, so I related to him quite well. He had been a history professor, I think, before he went to law school. Mm-hmm. And he had clerked for Justice Wilson. So I had that idea. He had talked about it, and I thought, that sounds really exciting. And I saw this, the sign posted, and I thought, eh, 
should I apply or not? Lived in Toronto. I was already married at the time. I talked to my husband about it and he said, you should apply. And I did. And I got uh, one of the positions with Justice Corey. Um, my husband told me afterwards, he said I should apply because he kind of thought I wouldn't get the job. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I was off to Ottawa for a year, which was hard, right? Uh-huh. But because uh, uh, we I was back and forth for a year. Uh-huh. But it was an astounding experience. Um, wow. And was that general experience or uh, did that even push you in the family law direction at that point? I, um, ending up in family law was uh, probably as much happenstance as ending up as a lawyer in the first place. Um, so it, I, I was a clerk to Peter Corey, uh, who actually sadly died this year. Uh, he, um, I, I don't know if you've come across his decisions. I mean, he's he retired obviously quite a long time ago, uh, but he was... Um, uh, a, a good man, and he was uh, a very kind man. Uh, had a very fine, um, a, a very fine sense of, of of judgment, of discrimination, of understanding, and so I, I learned a lot from working with him and seeing him decide cases. Uh, he. I, I didn't have the opportunity to work on any family cases that year because uh, the, at the time there were three clerks for each judge and one of my co-clerks, David Platt, uh, who's now a judge in Quebec actually, he was um, committed to being a family lawyer. He really, really wanted to be a family lawyer. And I had been thinking of, I wanted to do litigation wanted to be a barrister. I was thinking maybe um, administrative law uh, in some form, maybe labor law, something like that. So every time a family case came up, uh, Moog and Moog, which is a big family case, came up while I was there, David was the one who worked on the case, not me. So I didn't get any real family law experience while I was there at all. The family law came after because uh, I, uh, I finished at the court in... 93 or i was called in 93 i finished in 92 i did the bar exam bar um, exams and the courses at the time um there was a recession going on i had been offered a job as a first year lawyer at tories but in corporate and i didn't want to be a corporate lawyer i wanted to be a barrister so i rashly said no and turned down this amazing job with a great firm. Uh, and then I went about trying to get a job at the barrister and it was really hard because it, nobody was hiring really. And I wanted to, um, I want, I tried labor law and, and anyway, nobody, human rights um, uh, firms, all sorts of things like that. Uh, and in the end, I got a job at the Ontario Law Reform Commission. Uh, and uh, John McCamus was the chair at the time. Uh, I've been very lucky with the people I early in my career that I worked with. I mean, John McCandless, you may know, you know, he's the, um, the guru of restitutionary law and uh, also a very uh, kind uh, and thoughtful person. So I got that job and I took it because I thought, if I get this job, I can work in, with a commission for a while and then I can maybe slide over to the constitutional division of the AG or the civil division of the AG and do the kind of career I had in mind. Mm-hmm. And then the commission was asked to do some law reform reports on family law. There was one on same-sex 
uh, marriage and partnerships. Uh, there was one on reforming the property uh, system and uh, one on support generally. And I was uh, tasked with working on those reports. Uh, and in doing that, um, I started to learn more about family law. It tied in with my background in history because I had done a lot of uh, social history. So I was interested and still am in family relationships and uh, uh, the structure of the family historically and how it develops. And then looking at family law that underlies um, our law uh, and the reform of our law and how it's developed. So that caught my interest. And then um, at the time, sort of two things happened. One was, I don't know if you remember the, the turmoil um, in, in the province in 1993. Were you, I don't know if you were in Ontario. When I actually wasn't, and I probably wouldn't have remembered it anyway, so please share. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, you're shade younger than me. Um, so, but at the time, uh, there was a recession. Um, uh, the um, government was on, under a lot of financial pressure. They, they started, they put us all on three-month contracts, if you can imagine. There's security, three months at a time. They had something called Ray Days. The premier was Bob Ray, and they were trying to get people to work four days a week. It was all very unstable. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, this is not so good working for the government right now. Uh, and then the, um, there were... Uh, there were lawyers who were uh, consulting on these various projects. And uh, Stephen Grant, who's a prominent family lawyer to this day, was consulting on this project. And I was working with him and interacting with him. And then he had somebody in his office uh, quit. Uh, and so he offered me a job because he had a spot. And that seemed really like a good idea because I liked him. I was interested in family law. And it was a, an actual job that didn't come up every three months. <laughs> so, and then once I was into it, the, and that all happened in my first year of practice. So I started practicing family law in, I think, November of 93. And that was it. I've been practicing it since. Yeah. And if you, if you have any aptitude for family law, it just kind of sticks to you. Like it's just, once you start doing it, the work comes to you and no. Uh, really amazing. Uh, amazing how, I mean, yourself and other such successful lawyers I've spoken to land up in their roles almost by a bit of luck and chance. And I mean, it all works out in the end, of course, but amazing how you just land up meeting the right people and landing up setting you on, on a path to success ultimately. Um, you touched upon a lot of interesting things over there. Uh, and that is your combination of history and the development of law. Um, I'm coming from a different area of law, estates and real estate. Unfortunately, I don't know too much about family law. I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned the history aspect. Have there been major developments? What have the major developments been? You mentioned one being um, same-sex marriages. That's an obvious one. But uh, is there anything else or with that and, and anything else that stands out? Over my career, do you mean? Yeah, or over your career or in the past, whatever, 50 years or so, um, any major changes there? Huge changes, huge changes, certainly over the last 50 years, uh, because family families are an expression of our society. And as our society changes, families change, and the law changes, usually um, slowly, <laughs> a little behind the eight ball, uh, and, and it, it could speed up. But it has moved tremendously. Uh, and we went from a time uh, when... Um, there really were um, 
no meaningful property rights uh, for uh, non, you know, non-owning spouses um, where they were probably in Canada, mostly traditional relationships. They were men married to women, the women didn't have the money, they were at home looking after children and so on. Uh, so we had support law developed first um, in a protective way, really for women. Then uh, there when, was- When a, approximately was that, if you don't mind? In the 70s oh. about or after that? Like it, I'm just trying to get a picture of uh, family law in general. There would have been support rights earlier than the 70s. The modern concepts of support and importantly, no-fault divorce mm -hmm. came in, uh, I think in uh, 68, if I'm right. I might think okay. that there was a divorce act in 68 uh, and, and that was important. Um, it was possible to get a divorce without uh, proving that there was adultery or <laughs> or cruelty. Uh, I mean, people used to, in those days, before there was no fault divorce, and I just heard this, this is before my time, I'm not quite that old, but I've, I've heard from, from people talking about it, somebody, people's marriages still ended, right? And they ended not because of adultery, just because uh, they get along. And what would happen is that the, uh, um, somebody had to come up with a way to get out of the marriage. So uh, somebody had to sort of look like they were committing adultery. People would literally like rent a hotel room and then get caught, right? So they'd, they'd be there in a hotel room with, with a woman and then that would be the basis for the divorce. And it would be kind of gentlemanly for the husband to do that as opposed to the wife having to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, and and in fact, still to this day, people will see that um, they have to they have to attest that there's no um, condemnation uh, of the divorce. It's because of those those times, right, where where people had to kind of beg for a divorce. And then there was this move, and I'm pretty sure it was in the late '60s, to no fault divorce, uh, meaning that you didn't have to have a reason; you just had to have a period of separation which makes sense. So it's not done, you know, on a whim. Uh, and I think that started at three years and now it's one. The, the Divorce Act we have now is from 1986. And that um, was a huge transformation of family, uh, of, of family law. Uh, and, um, and the, um, sorry, am I saying 86? I might be wrong about that date. I want to hold you to it. Yeah, don't hold me to that. Um, and then, but what did happen in 86, uh, for sure, is the Family Law Act in Ontario. And the Family Law Act in Ontario deals with um, spousal and child support rights, but it also deals with property rights. And that was the a huge transformation because all of a sudden, um, marriages are deemed to be economic partnerships. And as economic partnerships, without having to prove it, you don't have to prove that cooking the meals is equivalent to schlepping out, you know, to, to earn an income and don't have to uh, get into the details of it. It's just assumed that in different ways, spouses contribute to the marriage and they should share in the profits of the marriage and in the wealth generated during the marriage without restriction, not just matrimonial homes, but all assets. And Ontario chose a, um, a valuation system so uh, with certain restrictions and exceptions, wealth is valued of each spouse at the beginning of the relationship and at the end of the relationship. And if someone got richer than the other, then there is an equalization payment. So in theory, they both share equally. Uh, and that um, created um, probably the, um, 
but a huge uh, transformation of the quality um, in our province because it had a big impact on reducing the poverty of non-owning spouses, um, usually women, after separation uh, because they got to share in the wealth and that hadn't been true before. There is still uh, more poverty among women than men after separations in our province, but it's definitely been ameliorated by that policy. And it also created the modern family law bar because what we do, um, and non-family lawyers tend to think we're social workers, which we're not, we're pretty unqualified if we are. Uh, and you need to, if you're a family lawyer, have some ability to understand and help people who are going through a traumatic time in their life. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what we're doing is actually financial. Uh, and because of the equalization, mm -hmm. it's financial work. So properties have to be valued. Uh, and there's uh, a lot of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis is actually dealing with financial statements and um, valuation reports and that kind of thing. Well, wow, that's interesting and amazing how it's developed relatively recently to uh, improve the equality between sexes. And, uh, you know, thankfully, we got to that point. Uh, I'm wondering if you still think that there's more to go or we're somewhat on an equal playing field now? Oh, there's still um, there's still a long way to go. Uh, I mean, we have some of the reforms and, and some of the more recent ones have have probably uh, caused more problems than they've they've solved. Uh, we have uh, we used to have child and spousal support based on you'd look at the income and you'd look also mostly at the expenses and try to make sure that the person received enough money to cover their expenses based on the lifestyle during the marriage and and the children's expenses. And then the government decided to reform that with um, uh, a guideline formula. Um, based on uh, on on incomes, first for child support, and then more recently for spousal support. Uh, and what that has done, unfortunately, is it has it's created a lot of interesting work. Uh, I spend a lot of my time thinking uh, and working with interesting concepts about what income is mm -hmm. <laughs> and imputing income. Um, but uh, it's made the process of family law really expensive. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it seems great because uh, the support numbers went up um, for sure. Like the amounts of support that people were getting went up significantly when they made these changes. But the costs of the system went up astronomically because it's a very labor intensive system. And so one of the issues we still have is that uh, some people can afford lawyers and some can't, uh, and um, and that's created an access to justice problem and for men and women. But I think it's probably uh, more of a burden on the the spouse with less resources, which is still usually the woman, not always though. I mean that's changing mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, access to justice is an interesting issue. And um, I, I've seen you write quite recently about uh, against different proposals or for different proposals. Um, one being that because there's an access to justice issue, uh, I think it's the law reform is considering bringing non-lawyers to try and deal with family law issues, mm. either paralegals or social workers. Uh, and I saw, uh, I, I agree with you that it should be reserved for lawyers because there's a certain uh, 
you know, area of expertise over there. But talk about the access to justice. Do you think there's a solution? I know it's a tough question and you may not have an answer, but if you're against the paralegals and the non-lawyers providing mm-hmm. family law services and the lawyers are charging so much, do you have any sort of solution for that middle-class income family who cannot afford a, a high-charging lawyer? I think there there are a number of solutions. Uh, having non-lawyers or uh, you know, paralegals taking on that role is not a solution because uh, they won't be cheaper, right? It's the same business. They don't have they won't have lower overhead than lawyers. There's nothing special about us. Right? Mm-hmm. We have we have rent, we have IT, we have all, all the same expenses. So they, I'm sure they won't be cheaper, and uh, and they they won't have the skill set that lawyers have. So there's a huge risk to the public. I don't think the solution to access to justice is to keep doing things the way we're doing them now and just have somehow have magically cheaper providers. particularly like a private sector, cheaper approach. I suppose if you expanded legal aid, that would have an impact. Mm -hmm. And I remember when legal aid coverage was much broader, uh, again, in the 1990s, and that was something that was uh, cut back uh, drastically. And that's when we first started seeing a lot of self-represented people in family law. It was almost overnight. It was also during this period of... um, of the 90s, it was probably when uh, Mike Harris with the Tory uh, party was in government and they cut back and restricted legal aid. There were a lot of cuts across the board happening uh, and not just legal aid. And it was night night and day. Uh, initially, show up in motions court and it was crowded. And then the next week, motions court, there was nobody there. And then gradually over time, people reappeared, but it was individual parties without without their lawyers. So one thing that could be done is to have, I suppose, subsidized lawyers or or the government subsidizing. I think that would be a good thing. I'm not sure how easy that is politically, uh, realistically. But there are, uh, and there are other ways that we can subsidize, uh, subsidize the provision of legal services. Um, I think that um, the Toronto Lawyers Association, which I'm, I'm a, on the board of, which is why you've seen me speaking, yeah. because I've been involved. You're in even uh, the, the director, if I'm not mistaken, so don't I'm, I'm one short. of I'm, That's right. I'm one of the directors of the TLA, and I'm uh, also the chair of the Family and Estates Committee of the TLA, which is why I've been working on this. Uh, and we've proposed, among other things, that perhaps there be a levy um, of all lawyers um, to create a fund to try and provide some some legal services to people who can't afford them. But I think there's another, a much bigger reform, which could happen, uh, and that is to move away from the adversarial process for family law cases. Uh, much as I, I enjoy it, <laughs> I'm a barrister, and I appreciate the traditions. Um, this British tradition of the common law and you have a judge that's there and you have the, the two parties and you duke it out. Uh, it, it has a lot of strength, but it's really, really expensive. And it's also um, exacerbates conflict uh, between couples, which is not what we want. Uh, and 
people can forget that in family law that uh, I mean, I'll often say that to younger lawyers when they, they get, um, you know, they're aggressively pushing for their client and uh, sometimes demeaning the other side. It's like, well, you think your client is, is, is the good person and the other, the other spouse is the bad person. What if they were, what if the, the wife was the one who walked into your office first instead of the husband? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're just people who, whose marriage failed. They just, <laughs> we have to have some compassion for both sides. And I think that there, we should consider moving away from the adversarial process to something more like a civilian process, uh, like they have in the in the courts in France or Italy, where the judge is uh, is not sitting back up on the days and just listening to the opposing parties. The judge would be a specialist in family law, and would sit down and work out. A solution with the parties, and you know maybe in an ideal world, have have family courts where that judge had access to um, experts. Like so, it would be possible to have valuation work or um, or the kind of expertise that's needed um, to assist with parenting coordination and so on available to work with. So that it would it would be a non-adversarial process. If we did that. There would be some more society social cost in terms of setting up the structure, but I think we would probably save money overall mm-hmm. because there are enormous resources expended on family law litigation. Sure. Uh, it, I'm not sure what the current numbers are. At one point, it was like 50% of the trials in the province are family law trials. Wow. So I think we could save on that side, and I think it would be a less destructive process. And it would not be so necessary for people to have lawyers. Mm-hmm. Well, you, 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 you mentioned a lot. There's a lot to unpack over there. Um, just a, a couple of things that come to mind. One is um, the trials, the number of trials you mentioned in family law. I'm just curious, how many uh, family law cases make it to trial? Other areas of law, personal injury, friends of mine, they can spend their whole careers and never make it to trial. So um, I, I assume it's different in family law, first of all. But different, yes. I mean, it's true that most cases don't go to trial. Uh, and, um, I mean, lawyers vary. Uh, but, um, I know, I might have one trial a year. Like, I don't. Mm. There are some lawyers who do nothing but trials, but that's rare, very mm. rare. Uh, and there are some family lawyers who probably don't do any trials, but it's likely that they don't like doing trials and they just refer their cases when they get to that point off mm-hmm. to somebody who does litigate. So most, most cases do settle. Um, but still overall, it's a very high percentage of the cases that go. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about the importance uh, or the value of mediation? I know it's uh, mandatory in Toronto. Is that, does that usually solve things for clients or I know family law clients are unique in that, that sometimes they're seeking that adversarial process that you're describing and they want to just stick it to each other uh, regardless, mm-hmm. even if it makes each other broke. So how do you remain impartial on the one hand? And then what is the best way to diffuse those very contentious situations, whether it be mediation or some other maybe a trick you got up your sleeve? Well, there's a lot of questions there. Uh, Mediation, it's not not mandatory for family cases, uh, but it is the whole court process involves mediation in a, in, in, through case conferences. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a lot of mediation that's happening in family law. Uh, it's very helpful in many cases. 
uh, and we do it a lot. I, I'm a big fan of it. And interestingly, even in high conflict cases, mediation can work mm -hmm. uh, if you have a skilled mediator. It, it's it's fascinating when that happens, and more people should do it. It's I always advise it. Um, uh, if as long as there's full disclosure, I, I wouldn't. People can get um, uh, hornswoggled a bit, right? You don't want to go into a mediation if the other side isn't giving you the information you need to make sure that you're fully informed. Mm -hmm. But as long as you're fully informed and have full disclosure, I always advise doing that before going to court mm -hmm. because it may work. And sometimes when a case is in litigation, litigation takes so long, um, we'll sort of stop and try mediation and can settle things partway along. Um, so the other question you asked me was about the, the high tensions uh, mm -hmm. in law. It's, it's definitely a factor. Uh, it is really important as a family lawyer, I think, to try to calm the waters because a certain percentage of client, family law clients coming in will be um, really angry. And uh, some of them, then maybe there's nothing you can do. They really don't want a resolution. They just want, um, you know, the War of the Roses and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, those aren't people that I'm going to want to act for for very long. I am very happy to take matters to trial if they need to be taken to trial. Uh, some cases do need to be litigated. Uh, but there's a difference between litigating to achieve a rational result and litigating just for fun and frolic and to terrorize your ex-spouse. Mm -hmm. I, I, won't, I won't play that game. Um, and, and no lawyer should. Um, there may well be some who do, but nobody should. There are some people who are, they're on the cusp of that. And so the trick is to calm them down and get them to focus on on solving the problem on their own self on their own self-interest right not um destroying themselves financially in this battle uh and thinking about their children and to divert them into a rational course of action which may still mean that there has to be some fairly aggressive tactics taken right mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances uh, but that's really important uh, and it is possible at that initial stage um if the lawyer doesn't handle the client well that they sort of head off into this disastrous self-destructive um path mm -hmm. so i think it's really important to do that and, and to bring the client back and it's easier if you're sitting in a room with somebody who's angry and upset and who may well have been mistreated to fall into the trap of just being a cheerleader right mm -hmm. and and in the moment, they'll love you for that. And they'll think, I have the best lawyer in the world because my lawyer says I'm completely right. And and will they're going to fight for me and they're going to try and destroy my spouse and they hate my spouse too. <laughs> but they will, most of them will realize over time that that's, uh, that's just um, harming themselves, not hurting them. So it, it's, it's not even necessarily good for the lawyer. And it definitely harms the client to do that. So you have to sort of pull them back a bit. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Our, our job as lawyers is to try to solve things, resolve things, bring people mm -hmm. together. That's really what we're paid the big bucks for. But 
I, I find lawyers thrive, at least academically, in the gray areas. Um, you know, I, I loved law school as well because of the theoretical aspects and, you know, mens rea in criminal law. How do you decide if the guy's got intention or not? That type thing always intrigued me because it could go either way. So you mentioned the, the family law type situation where you could argue either way depending on which spouse walked into your office first. Uh, I find that interesting as well. And one um, issue with COVID maybe in the background um, is an issue that could go either way. I heard recently couples uh, arguing or debating whether it's safe to send their children to school. And I I think that's something that uh, is under review right now in the court, if I'm not mistaken. But this is like uh, competing interests. One spouse says it's not safe. One spouse says it's necessary for social reasons. And uh, the spouses are busy um, arguing about it. And, you know, there's a famous fundamental concept, best interest of the child. But you get get a gray area like that. What does a family lawyer do in such a situation? Right. What, what are the best interests of the child? Right. Um, that's really difficult because it's not obvious. Uh, some, there are a lot of these cases and they are being decided um, different ways. It, 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 it probably depends on the child and the circumstances. So in some cases one can see, uh, and it may not even be entirely best interest of the child. Um, if a child lives with a parent who has a compromised immune system, for example, then choosing the uh, remote learning over school, uh, in-person school is the better choice, I would say. Uh, but um, and what I would say that objectively, and I suppose we tie that into best interest of the child, which is a lovely vague concept by saying, well, it's in the best interest of the child that their parent doesn't get ill and die. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's really not easy to see which side should win in these discussions. That's part of the problem. Uh, so as a lawyer, um, there are two things. The first thing is you try to do everything you can when it's that kind of a dispute to stop it from ending up in court because it's, um, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And if the parents aren't on side with it, there will be a lot of ill will and it will make everything else more difficult. And it's going to cost a lot of money. And frankly, it's pretty much throwing a dart at a board, Mm -hmm. right? Unless there's something specific like a compromised immune system, You're just going to a judge. You don't know which judge it is. And the results, I would guess, would depend a lot upon whether that particular judge thinks that it's super important for kids to have the social contact or that particular judge is the kind of person who worries an awful lot about COVID-19 infection. And you're not even going to know until you walk into court which one you get. Uh, And on something like that, you'll find out what their views are partway through your submissions. <laughs> so, so it's a, it, it's a, a real throw dart at the board kind of case to take. Um, and on something like that, we're advocates. So if I've tried to resolve it and can't, it's very important to my client. And that would be a really important issue. It would have been important to me when my child, if my child were younger, to, to make that decision. And they understand that they might lose. <laughs> and they understand that it's going to cost money uh, and they still want to do it, then I would go and I would make the best argument I could on the facts for their, for their position and try to win uh, and hopefully win. 
Uh, and I would do the same if I was hired by the other parent. Right. That's our job. Absolutely. <laughs> That's our job. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you uh, uh, give your comment on how COVID as a, has affected things? Right now, we're in the middle of our, our second lockdown in Toronto, and uh, I'm happy that I have a, a happy marriage, but I'm assuming other people are killing each other, being forced to be locked, locked up. Have you seen a spike in um, um, divorce applications? I mean, I'm, I'm on the pulse of real estate transactions, but I, I'm not so sure about how COVID has affected divorce rates. Have you seen a difference? I don't think so uh, overall. I mean, there was that first really serious lockdown we had. Yeah. And um, and with that one, I think nobody was doing anything. So there was almost a lull. Uh, and it was difficult for people to even get out. I, I, had, I had people who were calling me. You know, I was doing consults um, with people on their phones uh, in out in parks, right? And, or in, in their car, um, they pretended they'd gone to the grocery store and they're in their car. I mean, very difficult for people. So there was a little bit of time when nothing much was happening and we couldn't even issue claims. And then, uh, then things opened up and there was a bit of a rush, but I think that was just a backlog of people who were waiting. I don't, I don't see yet that we're having more marriage breakdown. Um, Maybe we will see that by year end. I don't think so. Um, but I do think there's more domestic violence, for sure. Because where there are bad marriages, um, there is unfortunately more pressure. And uh, I, I, that's my anecdotal, but that's my sense that there's more, uh, there's more violence happening. I, I could assume so. Uh, again, being locked up, not being able to leave. What What is a family law lawyer's role in domestic violence, if anything? I know it's something you generally call the police for, but does that usually lead to a divorce or separation, or what? What else could be done in such an unfortunate situation? Well, it, it depends uh, on what they want to do, but it's often the trigger, right? Because if um, if there's an assault uh, and somebody calls the police and there's a charge and then they're immediately separated, right? So the they'll, uh, the bail conditions will be making them separate, and that's often the trigger for the end of the uh, the end of the relationship. Uh, and um, also, we might have cases where somebody comes in who is in fear of their spouse and they want to separate but they come before the separation one of the most dangerous times in a in a violent marriage or a violent relationship is the actual moment of separation that's that's statistical right mm -hmm. the most likely to get killed by your spouse is the moment you say i'm leaving you mm -hmm. so often we'll have people come in they're in these relationships and they want to figure out a safe way to get out mm -hmm. so we will be involved in those cases and those cases move fast and you have to you have to get orders quickly because you can't just leave with your children that would be kidnapping so you have to have a plan and have a safe place to go to and maybe have an have a, a very uh quick uh going to court either ex party or on on short notice to get initial orders protective orders that kind of thing and then there's there's a lot of, of domestic violence out there. And it's um, often I will have clients and they, they don't tell me about it right away. They tell me about it months and months into the retainer mm -hmm. because they're not 
trusting, I suppose, um, it's the impact that the violence has on people. It really shatters their self-esteem. They have trouble talking about it. And so that that's an aspect of our work that we have to be able to pick up when it's there and identify it. Uh, even when they are separated, it's, it's crucial to understand it and to protect against it influencing the negotiations, for example, uh, when there's, there's violence in the background. And that, that's something I think I wish our judges had more uh, education on, because any family lawyer will tell you about that experience. And I still see cases where the judges are saying, well, you know, this person um, didn't mention the violence, you know, on the first day they issued their claim, but six months later they mentioned it. So somehow that's suspicious. It's actually not. It's actually pretty difficult. Well, it, it's, you mentioned something about uh, lawyers not being social workers or something, but it seems like we very much are in many ways having to look through that and get the truth out of clients. There's a big aspect of, of that in our work. Yes, yes, there is, for sure. Yeah, important important stuff. Um, I always like speaking to a specialist, so to speak, such a, an expert. You've built your career in family law and you're rated uh, best lawyer in a number of publications. You sit on the board of a number of family law-related institutions. You know, out of the many hundreds of other family law lawyers out there, I always wonder, give advice to the young lawyers amongst us. How do we get to the best lawyer spot? Any, um, you know, path that you could perhaps replicate and teach uh, young lawyers how to make it to the top of their practice area? Well, and every area probably has its own own way forward. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in, in any area, there are, there are two, two elements you need in your career. One is... Um, is excellence and to hold yourself to a standard of excellence, uh, to try to always do uh, uh, the best job for the client in terms of understanding the law and uh, not just not just telling them what the law is. That's not what the clients need. They actually need they need tactics and strategy. They need to they need a lawyer who can who can do that for them and. That is one aspect uh, of building a successful career. And the other aspect is being able to uh, build a client base. And people do that in different ways. Um, but you're, you're shining your light under a bushel if you're this wonderful lawyer, but you don't have any clients. No mm-hmm. one will out about you. Uh, and there are all sorts of things one can do. I mean, there's all the marketing and everything everyone does now, but a lot of it is the clients you do have, and somehow we all start with some, is is really giving them good service and um, and and focusing on their needs uh, and treating them like individuals, not just running them through a mill. Mm-hmm. I think those those are are the the elements that are necessary to succeed in law, whichever field you're in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so also uh, keeping in mind the advice to the younger lawyer, the, the law student even, um, you know, if you can just expand a bit on, on that, what you just said, but even with the law student in mind that they, um, you know, like you maybe didn't even know what they were getting themselves into and they enjoyed it. How do you uh, advise a young person like that to go ahead and make the most out of their career and, you know, build a successful uh, law firm or practice, whatever the case may be? 
Well, uh, you have to find a niche of practice of law that you enjoy. Uh, and different different areas have different pluses and minuses. I don't think, for example, um, I had some exposure to criminal law when I was clerking for Justice Corey, and I couldn't practice in that area. Um, I, it's, it's funny. Some people say they could do family law because it's too upsetting and emotional, and I could do that. I, I'm fine at managing that, but I, I couldn't even look at the exhibit. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> The bloody knife or whatever i can't do that uh so you have to find an area of law that you're comfortable practicing that you find um, intellectually satisfying and that may take some time to find your niche um i think i think the best thing to do uh is is be a listener. Right? I mean, if you think about it in every way, you have to listen and and learn from mentors. Uh, and it's important to find uh, find people to mentor you, uh, and hopefully different people with different different skills, so they can teach you different things. Uh, to to be an effective lawyer, you need to listen to your clients. You need to listen to opposing counsel. You need to be open to experience. I think. All, all great advice. Um, is there any last words you want to share with us, uh, fellow lawyers or, or law students or anyone interested in family law, uh, anything about you, your practice, or, or in general, before we let you go? That's a huge question. <laughs> I don't know. The, the floor is uh, yours. Last, last few moments to uh, share yeah. with us. Um, well, um, I think... Uh, I don't know. We're, we're um, it's it's an old profession, and uh, and I, I I was lucky to start with with Justice Corey, who had such a sense of the traditions, and I think that um, we need to we need to hang on to those and have some pride in in being lawyers and the practice of lawyer of, of law. It it is. Uh, an important part of society, and uh, we're not always the most popular, but we need to draw on our traditions, I think, uh, um, in terms of values. And on the other side of the coin, we need to embrace technology. So somehow we have to marry the two, and it's probably not that hard. We just have to, we just have to focus on, on those two branches, I would say. Mm -hmm. I, I agree 100% and I've enjoyed our discussion. I think there's a lot of changes coming for uh, lawyers in general, but also family law lawyers. Uh, technology is a big one. Uh, like everybody's been saying, uh, COVID and 2020 has accelerated things many mm -hmm. years, many years over. Uh, I'm all for it. I like technology. And um, I think marriaging those two, the future and technology with the, the solid traditions that we have is indeed a good formula to proceed. That's, that's great advice. Thank you. One last question I like to end with, and uh, sometimes people get stuck with it. So take your time. Um, okay. that, that is if there's a favorite quote that you have or saying that is going to be displayed before thousands or millions of people, th th does anything come to mind that you live with that keeps you going perhaps? Well, um, I, I'll tell you what I have. Um, I have a blackboard in my kitchen and I write things on it sometimes. And what's there right now is uh, a quote from Bob Marley. You know, yeah. Bob Marley, the, of course. the red guy's there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's from 
I think it's from Redemption Song. Uh, and he said, uh, uh, no one but ourselves can free our minds. That's absolutely true. So much work that goes into having a healthy mind and a healthy body. It's a, it's a daily, mm-hmm. daily effort that we got to put in. And that's how to be the best people and the best lawyers at the end of the day. Yeah, so... So that's my quote, Bob Marley. Thank you. I I like Bob Marley, big fan. That's great. Appreciate your time, Sarah. Really, thank you very much. It's been insightful. There's a a lot of depth to family law, as we can see, and a, a lot that goes into being a good family law lawyer. So thanks for sharing some of that insight with us. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. And, uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next one. All right. Bye for now.